Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Partnership that we and you are a part of called the Advanced Partnership. There is a gathering in Brea that uh, will happen at the end of October. And um, we're looking forward to just trying to bring folks down to worship together, to be together. And uh, so hopefully you can put some faces to names you've never heard. But uh, there are names that are out there. We, yeah, there are people in our church. And they, and they do greet you this morning. Well, this morning I want to, uh, I appreciate the introduction. I think Nick did that because, as he said, you take such a long time to get into what you want to say. I think I'm paraphrasing. but So I think he kind of gave my intro you know, subtly, which I thank you this morning for. Um, I do want to just invite you guys into a journey that I myself have been on and we at Capital City Church have been on for the last uh, six to 12, probably more like 12 months, in just pursuing um, what it is to be people of presence. Um, and, and, not, and, and I think even that, like we use that statement and some of us have got this context for kind of a generic understanding, but what I'm talking about is people who manifest the the real transcendent presence of God because there is something incredibly significant about this gathering right here in this particular place in time. And so I want to begin, um, which might be ill-advised, but I'm actually going to begin with a quote this morning and, um, because I think it's particularly helpful and it sets a, a bit of a pace for what I want to bring and share with you all this morning there's a man by the name of John Jefferson Davis, and I, I, I love this, Grace. I've never even seen this man before, but Grace put this together. I was like, oh, that's what he looks like. And he wrote this just wonderful book that I read about six years ago, and I went, oh, that was good. And then about a year ago, I remembered it, and I picked it up again, and it just had such a different, profound impact. And so I want to share with you something that he says in regards to being this embodiment of the transcendent Christ. The real presence of the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit with the assembly is the church's nuclear option that is available every Sunday. Just think about that statement for a moment. But the church has largely forgotten this option and generally doesn't invoke it in the name with full understanding. When Saul of Tarsus met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, He experienced a massive reality encounter, an ontological shock. Do you guys know what ontological means? It has to do with the essence of being. In other words, just down to the very root of who he is. An ontological shock that changed his life and understanding of reality forever. And then listen to this statement. In every true worship assembly, that's this this morning, the Damascus Road reality can be available to impact and transform the believing church by faith because in the New Testament, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. What a wonderful statement. And I just, I wanted to begin with that because I felt like he says so well just the heart and the thrust of what I want to encourage this church in this morning. And again, this is a journey that we are on at Capital City up in Sacramento. And I don't have time to to unpack the why, but I'll just give you very quickly. It came as a realization that in this day and age, that the call and the cry for transcendency in all that we do is so readily present. 
The world is seeking the transcendent as, as a sense of meaning in everything that it pursues and the values that it has. And I realized that the genuine and, and the actual authentic transcendent power, the Christ that is risen, that is what the church is to embody. That is the significance of why, or in part, of why we gather. And so the church is poised today to answer a cry of culture's heart. That if, as Mark Sayer says, if we realize that this is not a crisis but an opportunity, we have an opportunity today, brothers and sisters, to be the church as the world needs her to be. And so that's the heart behind this this morning. And so I want to say again that, that this right here, this gathering, the assembly of the church, is no ordinary event in no ordinary space and time. While it is reality for us, there is something, as Nick said, more significant. The portal has opened. The stranger things. Is that the, the stranger things portal? But it's a heavenly portal. It's culturally relevant. Right. Because this moment is actually extraordinary, brothers and sisters. This is an extraordinary moment. And what I want us to do is I want us to elevate our thinking and I want us to elevate our faith. Let's get it from the terrestrial to the eternal this morning. Let's build up a sense of expectancy that as you walk into this room, you don't do so with a fogginess or a bringing with you a sense of everything that life brings with it, but a sense of expectation that when the church gathers, God is going to do something. And now we all have our kind of presuppositions as to what that means, but I'm going to unpack that this morning and just introduce four liturgies or four habits of the church that are forming and informing of this supernatural reality. And I apologize if I play with this a little bit. No, that's all right. It'll take too much time. I'll just hold it. I want to make a second assertion as well, that the purpose of the church is not just to declare the existence of God in testimony or verbal proclamation, but it's also, it exists to embody his transcendent and powerful presence in a literal space and time. That is our witness. There's the proclamation of the church, there is the witness of the church. In Ephesians 3.10 says that God has purposed that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, oftentimes, we think of the manifold wisdom of God as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And of course, it is that very thing. But listen, for the new covenant church, for you and I, in the present age of grace, the manifold wisdom of God also includes the manifestation and the presence of the power of the resurrected Christ. I'm going in deep quick. Are you guys following me? The manifestation, the manifold wisdom of God is the revelation of Jesus, and the revelation of Jesus is not just a verbal proclamation by the word, while it is that, but it is also a visible witness and testimony of the church to the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 5.4, Paul tells us that the power, and the word there is the dunamis, the power of the Lord Jesus is present when we are assembled, he says, in the name of the Lord. That's our promise, church, when we enter into this place this morning. How many of you feel that dunamis today? Sometimes we don't. A lot of times we come in not feeling that. But the reality is, is that is the truth of the gathered church. Similarly, 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, says that as believers, we believers or the gathered church are those, he says, that have tasted of the powers of the age to come. We have tasted of the powers of the age to come. So as I said, I want to highlight four liturgies of the church's gathering that are designed to be facilitators of God's real presence and significant embodiments of the risen Christ's power. And to lay a foundation for this, I want to just draw out a helpful pattern of worship from within Scripture, one that can be found both in the origins of God's people as well as in the future eternal expression. And I've been speaking this to Capital City Church in the hopes of, through repetition, that we remind ourselves of this is God's purpose when we come together. This is what God wants to do. This is what we can expect in our own hearts when we come. And the, the first, as I said, is, as to the origins, when we want to understand truth of Scripture, we can oftentimes, it's helpful to go back to its first expression or its revelation within Scripture itself. And so we see, we can go to the book of Exodus, and I'm not going to go through this and read them all. I'm just going to give you this pattern so that we can get in to more of the meat of what I want to say today. But the first is in Exodus chapters 19 and 24, we have the accounts of Israel at Mount Sinai. Do you guys remember that? Israel at Sinai, where the law of God is being given to his people by Moses and the response of God's people in confirming their commitment to obey and to worship Yahweh. And the pattern that we see in Exodus chapter 19 and 24 is this. The first, it begins with God calling his people to assemble. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 25. God calls his people to assemble. How many times do we come here on a Sunday or some other gathering of the church and it's on our own volition, at least that's how we approach it. It's important for us just to begin with the understanding that this right here is not just because this is a good idea that we came up with on a Sunday morning. We have come here this morning out of obedience because God calls his people to come before him. And there's a specific purpose as to why. So the first is that the people assemble out of obedience. The second that we see within this pattern is that God descends then in power. He speaks to his people and his people respond. God descends in power He speaks to his people, and his people respond. And we see this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 26, and chapter 24, verse 3. Third, the covenant that God makes with his people is then confirmed by blood. Exodus chapter 24, 8. The covenant is confirmed by blood. And finally, the fourth aspect of this pattern is that Moses and the people's representatives, they eat a meal together in the presence of God. Exodus 24, verses nine through 11. So again, the pattern that we see is this. There's a call to assemble. God descends in power. He speaks to his people. The people respond to the presence and the revelation of God. The covenant is then confirmed and remembered by a meal. And then if we go to the end of the ages in the eternal consummation of redemptive history, in John's revelation, we see this pattern all over again. But now it's in its final and ultimate expression. There is a great assembly in Revelation 7-9. And he says this, John sees a multitude that that no one could number from every nation. 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, it says, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, there is this great assembly that will one day take place. Then we see that God descends, but this time to dwell himself among his people forever as their God. Revelation 21.2. Then we see the response of the people. Eternal worship of the Lamb and of their God. Revelation 7.10-12. through 12. And then finally, the covenant meal is represented in John's picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where the bride, us, his people... No longer in remembrance, but now in eternal union joined to Christ for eternity. Assembly, he descends, the people respond, and the covenant is confirmed by a meal. Brothers and sisters, what does that sound like to us? That's this. And somewhere in between these two bookends of redemptive history, we find ourselves today. And how helpful it is not only to have what God originated with in terms of his intended design, but also as a bit of a plumb line point, the ultimate expression that which we can align ourselves by. And we can say, wait, where have we gone off? And I believe that the problem that we find ourselves in is that the present expression so often within the church is thin and diminished when it comes to the presence of God. What level of expectation do we really have? Do we really come with an expectation that the presence of God will descend upon this place? Do we even know what that looks like? That in itself probably could use a Sunday to unpack. That's for you, bro, okay? Write that down. (laughs) But it's true. I grew up in a very hyper-charismatic upbringing through the Vineyard Church. My understanding of the descendant presence of God is probably wildly different than some of what you have experienced. But again, that's for another time. So we have to ask ourselves, what implication does this have on the here and the now for the gathered saints? Can we see why this thin and why this diminished expression that often passes at church isn't remotely close to what God has designed for his people? Why is that? It's because we have lost sight of the key that is central to God's pattern for worship. It's the revelation of himself and the manifestation of his power and his presence. That is central, church, to us coming together. It is not this. While this facilitates that, because it invokes response and it invokes our hearts in a posture of faith to receive, this isn't the culmination. This isn't the culmination. It is the revelation of God to his people in a variety of ways. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he describes a church in this way that has become thin and diminished as a faith that is feeble and a worship that is flabby. Oh, man. Nobody wants to be flabby. A faith that is feeble and and a worship that is flabby. my place in my notes. I lost my page in my notes. No, I didn't. It's right here. So as I said, there's four liturgies of the Sunday gathering that I want to consider uh, whose intended expression is 
I think, potentially weightier than what we often experience. They're habits that expressed in, in light of what I was just speaking of, of the power of the presence of Christ. They take on a greater significance and are more powerfully dynamic when the church comes together and they reveal this extraordinary transcendent reality of the church itself. And why is it important that we pursue these things? The significance of this is that for the church, we would not only develop a more robust, Jesus-centered expression of Sunday worship, but to break the hold that the cultural liturgies have on the church, which have doled her and have doled the expectations of us over time and diminished this tangible presence of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? The cultural liturgies that we don't realize, we combat and we fight each and every single day and moment of our lives are all geared not by a passive enemy, but by a strategic enemy who wants your heart and who desires to, to steal your affections and your attentions and to rob you of this reality that you are something unique in this present day and age. And we don't have time to talk about the unique, the unique nature and the radical origins of believers in this present day. But consider the work of the cross and how radical that is and now your life in light of that. There is nothing ordinary about who we are today. I'm sorry, I'm fidgeting so much. There's nothing that is ordinary about who we are. Why should there be anything ordinary about our worship? Yeah, you want me to? I'll just do it. It's more distracting. I like my hands. <laughs> Let me share with you one last quote, and then I'll give you the four liturgies. It's the same gentleman, and it's just a little bit further. John Jefferson Davis says this as well, that Christian churches need to constitute in their practices, especially in their practices of worship, this is an interesting statement. Alternative plausibility structures. In other words, practices that express the probability of something being true. Okay? Not just in sentiment, but in embodiment. The church needs to constitute in their practices alternative plausibility structures that can embody and experience the presence of the divine in a way that directly challenges the suffocating naturalism of the dominant culture. It's important to defend belief in God and the supernatural theologically and apologetically. Of course we agree with that. But this cognitive strategy, in order to have lasting impact, needs to be embodied within a believing community that expects to experience and is actually aware of experiencing the reality and the presence of the God in the Bible in its worship. Did you guys get that? That was heady. But what they're saying is that, what he's saying is essentially this. There are a significant amount of cultural forces, if you will, or liturgies, habits, practices that form our habits and our affections that we ourselves not only must be aware of, but in this practice of the church, we have to combat those strategically because the battleground is not only our hearts and minds, but it's the hearts and minds of those who do not know Christ Jesus. So the first liturgy that I believe has 
just a, a supernatural formation to it that the church is called to is the liturgy of responding in song. We know this incredibly well. But can I first say this, church? This is all worship. It's not just this. We have diminished and relegated something beautiful to two fast songs, two slow songs, and, you know, whatever other cynical thing I can come up with in this moment. But you get what I'm saying. We have, we have, we, we've limited the beauty of worship to somehow being man-centered. This is all worship. Pre-gathering prayer is worship. Of course, the, the singing of song, as I'm saying, is worship. This is worship. The, the posture of our hearts, there is so much more than what worship is than just singing. Matt Redman, you guys know him. He wrote a song years ago that we sang quite a bit of, and it, he, and it, he says this in the chorus, that worship starts with seeing you. Worship starts with seeing you. And then the, the, ver, the words go, our hearts respond to your revelation. What a true statement that is. And there's that pattern again, or part of that pattern that we see. Such a, a concise and yet pointed observation as to the nature of worshiping the Lord Jesus in song. Worship begins with the revelation of God, not of us, of God. Sadly, so often we see within the modern day church that it fails even on this most basic and obvious starting point. Many churches, they need to recapture the biblical truth that God is the central figure of the church's worship. Not the preacher, not the musicians. God is the center of our worship. So what we sing, and even to a degree, how we sing it matters greatly. The types of songs that we sing, the lyrics that we sing, the church needs to sing of the whole counsel of God. We sing songs that are rich and vibrant in praising God just as much as they are in admitting our sin and our guilt, in lamenting a world that is lost and waiting for the hope of his return. These are the things that we should sing about. And as we worship, what we begin with is that we respond to what we have seen, but as we continue on, we respond to what we see. In other words, our hearts just begin in worship because of who God has revealed himself to be to us. But then as we worship, which is what we endeavor to do through the music on a Sunday morning, as we worship, we respond in time to the revelation of God to his church. Do you guys have faith for that on a Sunday? Do you come with that expectation on a Sunday? One New Testament scholar says that the act of worship is God's divine action consisting in the presence of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of his promise that I am with you always even to the end of the age. His presence is an event renewed again and again. So worship then is not just a mental ascent for, the, for those of us who are more cerebrally minded. It's not just this mental ascent to some place of, ah, oh, yeah. It's a response to the ongoing revelation of God to his people, which then leads us to something further. 
something even more explicit to the presence of the transcendent one, and that is the manifestation of his presence through the gifts of grace. In this kingdom moment of worshiping in song, where we extol the Christ for who we know him to be, and as he descends upon his people in power by his presence, there's an opportunity and an expectation of his spirit, who is present in worship, to move on the hearts of his worshipers by grace. Prophecy, words of knowledge, faith, tongues and their interpretation, and any other manifestation of grace that he would intend for us in that moment. God's presence is attested to by the activity of his spirit amongst his people. Do we expect that on a Sunday? Do we come with a readiness in our hearts that God will move in such a way? And listen... And I said this to my church, this is a team effort. This is not just lay it on the shoulders of a couple of people, and let's really hope the elders have got it together this morning, right? Because doggone it, I'm feeling tired and sluggish today. No, listen, church, this is in each one of us individually, together, pursuing these things in faith. Have you guys ever gone to a gathering of believers, maybe it's a conference or, or something where there's a number of individuals who are coming together for a purpose, Christians in worship. Have you ever been to something like that? There is this amazing ease of ability to enter quickly into a place of God's real presence. Why is that? I have, I have reduced it in my mind that it is just simply a matter of faith. Those who are coming, we come with an expectation, much like when we come into some other type of event where we go, this is what I'm going for. When we come with an expectation, when the saints gather together, this is why we are here, to pursue the revelation of Christ, to give back to him because of who he is to us, and to allow him and receive his response to our own hearts. This then leads us directly to the second element of our worship that's desperately in need of this dunamis of God, liturgy of the ministry of the saints. So the first is liturgy of, of response and song. The second really significant and supernatural habit that the church can be engaged in is the liturgy of the ministry of the saints. God's divine and sovereign interaction doesn't only happen when we sing. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation. To each is given the manifestation. Say that with me. To each. Say that to your own heart. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he goes on to speak of the church as one body with many members each one functioning for the sake of the health and the wellness of others. So in other words, your obedience and your faith when you come on a Sunday and your expectation of what will happen is not just for yourself, but it's to the benefit of others. So this assumes the general premise that you are present on a Sunday as well. Not only are we present, but we are present. And so if you look around this room and as you spent those three to five minutes welcoming your brothers and sisters or a visitor if you're here this morning, 
as you looked around, what we ought to be doing is realizing that, man, what I'm doing this morning, it's for you, John Mark. I'm here this morning for your benefit and for your benefit, each one of us with others in mind. And later in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul would say that when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. And he says, let all things be done for building up. So here's the point. There's a designed liturgy within the fabric of the church that is the saints, both ministering to God and ministering to one another. This is necessary, not just helpful, but it's necessary for the health and the vibrancy of a church. I was saying to my church, I think in a preach that I did, just when we were around this subject, that sometimes it feels a bit more like that scene from Gladiator as a preacher or as an elder, where he stands in the arena and he goes, are you not amused? You remember that? Sometimes it feels like that. You feel like you're just the only one who's pushing in with faith for the sake of the church. It's us together. It's us together. Number three, liturgy of the word. The third element that takes us on greater meaning when held in light of the presence of God among his people and the power of his spirit is the word of God. I am not the best with sermon illustrations. Nick is amazing with sermon illustrations. Stories are helpful. Illustrations are helpful. They all help us to apply truth to our heart. But listen, ultimately, it is the word of God that is living and active, as Hebrew says. It is the word of God that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing what? To the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows, it says, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Ooh, your heart is laid bare by the word of God. So listen, we don't simply come to be reminded on a Sunday. We come to be changed. We come to be transformed by this living and active sword that pierces the hearts and minds of men and women. We come to have our minds and hearts opened and transformed into Christ-likeness, which comes, as Paul would say in, to the Corinthians as well, by beholding him. As we behold his glory, we are being transformed to one degree of glory, day by day, which is the work of the Spirit of God. We behold him, and then his Spirit within his church works to transform our hearts through the Word of God, to be reminded and to be transformed, brothers and sisters. That is the liturgy of the Word. And number four, and lastly, liturgy of the Lord's table. Again, I'm speaking about habits. Liturgy are, are practices that form our habits. Practices that inform and form our heart's desires. That's what a liturgy is. It's the work of the people to engage in these habit-forming practices. So these practices, brothers and sisters, I believe are given to the church for the sake of the embodiment of the transcendent power and presence of the risen Christ. To worship in song, to respond in song. The word of God and the Lord's table 
I think this is perhaps one of the more misunderstood liturgies of the church, and yet it is not only vitally important, because it's one of two explicitly given by Christ, but it's significant in, in, in being, uh, I was going to say something that didn't make sense, it's significant in that it facilitates, it's not just informing, but it facilitates the real presence of Christ among his people. It begins by understanding what it is. It's more than just a remembrance. Do you guys believe that? The Lord's table is more than just an act of remembrance. It's a life-giving and a grace-impartating. Impartating? Imparting. <laughs> That's, ask my church. I make up words all the time. Just write that down in your notes. Impartating. I read one time an author, he said that the Lord's table is not a funeral parlor, but it's a banquet room that experiences joyful fellowship with the living one. So while, of course, it is inclusive of the death of Christ, the Lord's table sits firmly in the present reality of his resurrection and his ascension. A resurrection that secured his victory and the church's, ours as well, and his ascension that proclaims his power, his authority, his preeminence, and subsequently the churches as well. When Paul speaks of the Lord's table, in quoting Jesus, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And that word that we translate in the English as remembrance is profoundly more significant in its original meaning. It means representing a, a thing or an event regarded not as just being absent as in only in the past, but rather being presently operative by its effects. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, assume for yourself all the benefits and the effects of the totality of the Lord's table for your life. That is where grace is present by the Spirit of God, church. That's where the truth is of what Christ has done and who he is, is applied to our hearts and to our minds. And so therefore, it isn't simply a place where the believer goes to reflect on a memory of a past event. It's where the Christian goes to participate by the mystery of our union with Christ in the present day grace and all of its benefits. I wanted to read a portion of Calvin's Institutes, but I don't think that I have time. Let me just give you the last portion of it. I think we have it um, for them, Steph, don't we? Skip that. It's really good, but I got to skip it. It's not my fault. Just kidding. Let's just start there. Yeah, go, go back. We'll start on the great indeed. Yeah. Oh, that's the beginning. Sorry. You're doing so good, Steph. This is the exchange, all right, fine, I'm reading it. Great indeed is the fruit of sweetness and comfort our souls can gather from the sacrament because we recognize Christ to have been so engrafted in us as we, in turn, have been engrafted in him. This is Calvin on the Lord's table. So that whatever is his, we are permitted to call ours. Whatever is ours, T-O-O, -O, reckon as his. As a consequence, 
we may dare assure ourselves that eternal life is ours, that the kingdom of heaven can no more be cut off from us than from Christ himself. This is the exchange which out of his measureless goodness he has made with us, that receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. Listen, church, this is present at the Lord's table. That taking our weakness upon himself, he has strengthened us by his power. That having received our mortality, he has given us his immortality. That descending to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That becoming the son of man with us, he has made us sons and daughters of God with him. Whoa, I've got the chills. That is what's at the Lord's table. It is not just an act of remembrance. It is a union with the millions of other believers who have gone before in this, this supernatural space and time when we come to the table of God. I think I'm just gonna land with that. Let's have the musicians come back up. And I think that's a good place to just posture ourselves to come to the Lord's table. There's more that I could say, but I think I'll just leave it there, bro. And let's just remember, brothers and sisters, when we come into this place, we come here for a reason. And we come here with an expectation. Let's remember that pattern. We assemble in obedience. We expect the presence of God to descend upon his people, whereby God speaks to us and reveals himself to him at which point we respond to his revelation. And within it all, this covenant and all of what I just read is confirmed in our hearts at the Lord's table each and every week. Brothers and sisters, this is supernatural. This is divine. And this is ours. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen. While Matt gets ready, we're going to respond um, in song, and then we are going to participate in the fourth liturgy. Um, yeah, I just want to do something really, probably I shouldn't do right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. I just feel led by God to do this. One of the challenges that happened in the history of the church is that the altar which held the communion elements was shifted to the side uh, uh, and the pulpit became the center. Yep. Um, and I think just as a prophetic act of recognition of the centrality of what we do, remember a couple of years ago we had it here until Maddie messed it up with the map. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But literally just for a practical reason we moved it to the side. Uh, I just want someone to help me move it back to the center awesome. as we, just as a prophetic act to move that back to the center. Awesome. Jesus, uh, I want to thank you for just a fresh reminder through your word. I want to thank you that we, uh, we are people of the presence because of the penalty that you paid, 
because of the power of sin that you broke over our lives. I want to thank you that we come empty-handed with nothing to offer and you fill us. And I want to pray this morning uh, that as we sing and as we respond, we would just have a fresh outpouring of your grace, reminding us that you are present here with us, the head of your body, the church. You are somehow, God, I don't know, present as we participate in this meal that gives life. Just as we turn our affection to you through worship, Spirit of God, will you just remind us of these deep and profound truths. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.